If you guys could uh, open your Bibles up to Matthew 4. <clears throat> Matthew 4 says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest they any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. But Jesus said unto him, and is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up to an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things I will give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is on the sea coast, in the borders of Zebulon and Nephilim, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, that out of the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephilim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw a great light. And to them which sat in the region in the shadow of death, a great light has sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, he called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. And immediately they left the ship and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought him unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those which had palsy, and he healed them all. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are so thankful for your presence here this morning, God. We thank you for the encouragement that we've received from hearing testimonies, God. We thank you for the, um, the, the confidence that we feel when we're in your presence, God, and um, during worship when we um, just get a, a small glimpse of who you are, God, and are just so grateful that you take time to, to deal with us, God, to, to do the work inside of us that needs to be done so that we can glorify you, Father, so that we can, we can find our rest in you, Father. I just ask you to be here now in the midst, to stir the waters, God, to, to send your spirit up and down every one of these rows into my heart, into the hearts of all of those here this morning, God, to the hearts of those listening, God, that we would be able to hear and understand, God, that we would not just hear words, God, but that we would hear your will and your words into our heart, God, that we would be able to absorb what it is that you want to teach us this morning, God, and I ask you to put a hedge of protection around my mind, Father, God, that you would not... Not allow any any thoughts of my own, God, or any uh, just anything from my opinion, God, but that I would be able to step aside and let your glory be the thing here this morning, God, that um, you would be uh, 
be seen as glorious this morning by, by what we read and what we hear, Father. Just, just speak to us this morning, God. We need to hear your voice. We need you to stir us up and we need to be equipped, Father, so we can, we can be like you and bring you glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, about a, <clears throat> last Saturday I sat down and I, I didn't have a message and uh, so I just prayed and said, well, I'm going to just start reading in the Gospels and when I get to where I'm supposed to stop, stop me. <laughs> so you can see I made it to Matthew 4. <laughs> but, uh, but the more that I've looked at this, the more I think realize that maybe I, maybe you, not you, but that I've missed out of this story. I, um, you know, sometimes you, you sort of um, rebuttress what you already know. You kind of like, you know, oh yeah, I remember when somebody said that. Or And sometimes you, you get in the Word and God just opens your, your eyes to things that you've never seen before. And that's kind of how this week was for me. Um, and really encouraging to me, and, and I pray that pray and be encouraging to you guys as well. Um, but, I, but the more that I, I studied it, you know, we're, we know this story because we've all heard it a hundred times and it's frequently referenced, you know, um, Jesus. Um, but, but what really struck me was the more I thought about it, the more important I felt like this story was. Um, one of the main reasons I think it's important is because who is with Jesus in the wilderness? There was no one with Jesus in the wilderness at that point. He, he didn't have disciples at that point. So, so Jesus was by himself in the wilderness, right? So this story is referenced in three out of the four Gospels. And I think later we'll see where John references it in 1 John, so he knew about it. So that means that this story, out of all, this, all of Jesus's, you know, we have essentially 18 years of silence. If you count the temple as being Jesus speaking, you have 30 years of silence as far as miracles or God working. And none of that got recorded. Like Jesus's whole, we know like he moved different places. We know he fulfilled all righteousness by going to the temple and, and fulfilling the law. We know that by age 12, he was confounding the Pharisees with his knowledge. But we don't know so much that would be interesting to know. I mean, 30 years old, that's, I'm 30 years old. You can do a lot in 30 years, especially in a culture when if he was the oldest child, you would be expected to be a breadwinner. You'd be expected to help out to, to, to age. You know, his father's a carpenter. We all know that. A lot of commentaries believe that his father died. And if that's true, then at some point Jesus became the primary breadwinner. And they believe that because it, all, it references his mother and his brothers, but it never again references Joseph. We don't know that to be a fact. But irregardless, he would have been expected to be working by age 12, by age 13. He would be in, he'd been helping his family out. So, so he's 18 years in the trades. He's 18 years developing skills. And he has to live just a normal life. We don't have any recorded miracles. We don't have anything. And, and out of all that time, Jesus is silent. We don't have any recorded instances of anything that he did when he was a boy. And yet we have this story in great detail by three. And like I said, I think John references it in First John. We'll see. So we could say four out of four. But a three out of the four Gospels reference it. Mark's only two verses, but... Uh, Matthew and Luke spend half a chapter on each one. They develop it. They, t- they tell you about where Jesus was at, how he felt, what the devil said, how the devil came to him, what state of mind Jesus was in when the devil came. They tell you all these things, and then they even go so far as to tell you what the temptations were that the devil gave to Jesus. And the only way they could have known that, apart from divine revelation, which, which I think is probably not as likely, is just the fact that Jesus thought this was so important that he told them. 
he said, this is what happened to me. Out of all the stories of his childhood, this is the one that he told. All the other stories we have in the Gospels could have been verified from multiple sources. You know, Luke was a historian. He just gathered information. He said, I've, I've sat down, Theophilus, to give you a better understanding. I'm going to collect all the facts from all the different people. So Luke just interviewed a bunch of people. All the other stories of Jesus could have been corroborated, but not this one. Because it says he was in the wilderness by himself. And so when you think about that, and you think, man, Jesus wanted me to know this so badly that he drilled it into the, the disciples to the point that they all remembered it with great detail. Jesus' response, what the temptations of the devil were, and they remembered that, and it stuck with them, and it was, I think it was a vital component in their life, and I think, that, I think Jesus must have viewed it as a vital component of his life. And so when you think of that, then, then, then you begin to, to wonder, what is, in, what is in this story that was so important that Jesus felt we needed to know too? Because I think that's why stories are in the Bible. That's why in Luke's account it says he was tempted for 40 days, but for those 40 days, we only know three things the devil tempted him on. He doesn't make, Jesus isn't into drama. <laughs> he's, not, he's not talking about the wind, how it felt, and the, the hunger, and the heat of the desert. He didn't talk about any of that. He just brought out three things that the devil tempted him with. And I think it was what he wanted Peter to think of when he said, Peter, the devil wants to sift you, but I pray for you that your faith fails you not. Because in that moment, Peter was headed into his wilderness and he didn't succeed like Jesus did. He failed. But I think later he would succeed. So I think this is vitally important. I think it's incredibly important. I think we can spend a lot of time thinking about this and learn a lot from it. And I think that on the other side of it is victory. I think that if we all go home and put this into practice, we will no longer pray for revival. We'll see revival. We'll no longer long for power, but we'll have power. Because I think that there's something in the wilderness. There's something in this experience that equipped Jesus. Because suddenly, in Luke's account, Luke goes out of his way to say the fame of him spread everywhere. That's the next verse. It says, angels came and ministered to him. The fame of him spread everywhere. How is that possible? For 30 years, his own family didn't recognize him as the Son of God. For 30 years. And suddenly, he comes out of the wilderness and the fame of him spreads everywhere. It says it twice in Luke 4. It says twice in Luke 4 that people recognized that he spoke the word with authority. He wasn't mute for the 30 previous years. And yet when he went back to go do miracles in his own hometown, what did he say? A prophet's not without honor except in his hometown. And the people said, who do you think you are? So obviously he wasn't, you know, the Catholics have this, these church stories about what they think Jesus was doing, doing cool little things, turning clay balls into birds, performing miracles. They think there was, but obviously it wasn't like that because there was nothing. I think maybe his mom and his dad were probably the only ones that saw something special in Jesus. And everybody else just saw a really good kid, a really good individual, a really good supplier, a really good person. So something happened in the wilderness that catapulted Jesus from silence into ministry. And another thing that's interesting to think about is what happened previous to the wilderness. His baptism, right, with John. And if you were ever going to launch a ministry, you would have wanted to do it from that riverbank. Think about it. He's 30 years old. No one's recognized who he is yet. He goes to the riverbank, why? To glorify his father, to fulfill all righteousness. He comes to John, who may be the first person to notice, you are the son of God. I am not worthy to undo your sandals. And what does he have to say? He says, you baptize me because this is to fulfill all righteousness. This is the will of my father. 
Then he goes under the water, he comes up, and it says the Spirit descended on him. And the voice comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, that would be a really good moment to start a message, right? (laughs) When we talk about captive audience, you're in a place you're loved. You're in a place you're accepted. For the first time, people see the call of God on your life like you've seen it the whole time. And yet, the word Mark uses says that the Spirit drove, which in the Greek means to eject. Like a pilot flying his plane, he hits the eject button and he's gone. I mean, as Jesus' lives go, that had to be the pinnacle moment of his spiritual life to that point. I mean, it couldn't get any... His whole life was about what? Pleasing the Father. And in that moment, the Father had spoken from heaven and said, And you, I'm pleased. And then it says, The Spirit ejected Jesus into the wilderness in order that he might be tempted by the devil. And the word wilderness means loneliness. It's a wasteland. It's a lonely place. So I want to develop a thesis. I like to come up with a kind of a summation of, so that we don't lose track of what we're talking about. And I think the thesis of this chapter, that what Jesus is trying to drive home for us is that we need to win the interior battle with the world so that the exterior world can see the glory of the Father through us. We need to win the interior battle with the world so that the exterior world can see the glory of the Father through us. When we get to 1 John, we'll see what that word world means, what we're talking about when we say world. But, but I, think that's, I think that's why this story was important, because it was a key to the disciples moving with power. And it's a key to us moving with power. We've got to win the interior battle with the world so that the exterior world can see the glory of the Father through us. So if you look at Matthew 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. And then the tempter came to him. I think that a lot of times we have a tendency because we say the word Jesus and we should have reverence and there is power in the name of Jesus. But we have tendency to take away from him, to strip from him his humanity at this time. We have a a tendency to to create him as as a set-apart individual, as something different than what we are. And yet everything that Jesus did, he went through to prove that he, he did it like us. In all ways, he was tempted in all things like we are. If he had cheated, that's the whole point of this story, he wouldn't be in all ways treated like we are. So what does that mean? I think that when he came out of the water, he experienced the same thing we would experience in a spiritual high spot. That closeness to the Father, the overwhelming sense of the presence of God, the, the, the sense that everything is right and joyful. But then I think when the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, I think he felt what we would feel. What would would we feel if we were taken from a place of acceptance and a place of warmth and everything's right with the world and this is what I'm here to do and suddenly taken immediately into a lonely wasteland where the devil for 40 days and 40 nights tempted him while he didn't eat. He was human. He He felt all of that. He felt the heat of the night. He felt the coldness or the heat of the day and the coldness of the night. He felt all that. In Mark's chapter, it says not only was Satan tempting him those 40 days, but the wild beast. And personally, I would think I would, I'd, there's a good chance I would feel like in the Old Testament it refer to the wasteland and the beast. And they're talking about demonic things in the wilderness. 
the spiritual assault. But even if it's just talking about literal beast that the, the devil would incite to try to drive fear into Jesus' heart. Jesus was a human being. He lived 24-hour days, 40 days and 40 nights as a human being. No, no protection, no shelter, no food. And that feeling you get at night when you're sitting there and you feel like something's coming up behind you. <laughs> he felt that. And if any of you guys have ever ever fasted, you know that sometimes when you fast, it's easier than other times. And sometimes, sometimes God's Spirit sustains you. And, and sometimes it's a real struggle not to do anything but drive by McDonald's until your fast is over and then get in the drive-thru <laughs> drive line. But I think, that, I think that, you know, for one thing, it's scientifically or biologically improbable, if not impossible, for a human body to go 40 days and 40 nights. You know that. That takes the, a spirit, the spiritual sustaining. But I think that it's very critical to note here that it says, and afterward he hungered. The word is famished. I think that Jesus came to a, a crash, so to speak. Maybe God just lifted off his presence that had been sustaining him through those spiritual attacks of 40 days. But I think that it's, it's critical to notice that it says, afterward he hungered. There's, there's something that changes from 40 days and 40 nights of successfully battling the devil to afterward he hungered. And I would think that maybe that's that crash, you know, that, that suddenly your body kicks in and says, okay, I need food now. Okay, now we've got to go take care of this problem. Now we've got to do something. You know, if you've ever read something about like the, the ship, the people that get outcast or get stuck out on the, you know, the desperate lengths that they'll go to to stay alive. Your body overrides your brain and says, this is what you need to do to stay alive. People resort to cannibalism to stay alive when their mind kicks into that level. That desperation to survive will do anything to stay alive. And I think Jesus, because he was in all ways tempted like we are, his body kicked in and said, this is, all right, we've got to get this fixed now. Because what does the devil do? He waits till that moment and he comes and said, let's fix it. And see, the devil is smart and he knows when, when we're up and when we're down. He knows when we've left our guard down. He knows when we feel like we're forsaken. He knows when we're lonely. He knows when we're down. And he'll wait to those moments. You know, I know we've all felt it. Those spiritual battles that you go through and you, and you start out on a high point and you're slogging through and you kind of go up and down and up and down and then suddenly you're whoosh, whoosh, down. And it's then that the devil comes and everybody's against you and nobody understands and nobody's ever been here before. And you know what? I think Jesus experienced all those feelings without sin here in the wilderness. Because what is the devil's constant reminder? He says, if you're the son of God, what had happened 40 days previous? God had approved Jesus as his son. Don't forget, Jesus was a man. 40, 24-hour days of the devil hacking away at you. We've all been in spiritual battles. We know what that feels like to have the devil hack away at your confidence. So the question is, we have to ask ourselves, before we say, how did Jesus overcome the devil? We have to ask ourselves, because this is the first question we have to answer for ourselves. Before we ever get toe-to-toe with the devil, we've got to ask ourselves, why will I go into the wilderness because God was a human being. He had free will. It says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. It said the Spirit descended on him and full of power and full of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Does the Spirit ever convict us to do anything? Did Jesus have the choice not to go into the wilderness? 
Could he have stayed where he was to avoid the wilderness? He could have, right? He could have chosen not to go into the wilderness. Or he could have went into the wilderness and tried it out for a few days and then came back. He could have. And for most of my life, that's probably what I've done. Because the wilderness is an unfriendly place. Because I've got to get rid of this. I've got to fix this. I've got to, I've got to come back. Whatever happened back there, I don't know. I don't even know if that was real. But I know this is a problem and I've got to fix this. And that darkness it comes over and you're trying to make decisions and you're fighting through that. But my question is, before we look at how to win the battle, we have to ask ourselves, is what would drive somebody to stay obedient to the Holy Spirit even when he's driving you to be tempted by the devil? You know, the devil could, in a way, rightly say, everything you've experienced these last 40 days, all the struggles you've went through these last 40 days was God-ordained. God did this to you. And don't think he didn't suggest that to him, because what did the Israelites constantly think? It would have been better off if we'd never come to this wilderness. And they weren't suffering. <laughs> he said, the shoes never wore out. The clothes never wore out. Your bodies were healthy. You never experienced sickness. I, I healed every one of you. And yet, it would only take one day without water. And what would they all say? We would be better off if we'd never come to this wilderness. What do we say when it feels like, I did this out of obedience to you, and now everything... Is, is, is not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way I planned on it. There's silence. There's darkness. There's wilderness. This isn't the way I want it. This isn't the way it's got to be. I, don't, I looked in here and I didn't see whether or not the, the devil actually appeared in a bodily form or not. I don't know. But I do know that this bottle was t- entirely interior for Jesus. And that's where our battle is. It's interior. So, so I think you could assume that the devil showed up in bodily form. It just says the devil came to him. The devil doesn't come to us any less real. We don't experience the devil in any less real way just because we don't visibly see him. Those thoughts in your mind of I was close to God yesterday, but now God doesn't love me. That's, that's, a, that's a being. That's a person. That's the devil. That's his job. And I think that Jesus, knowing that, saw how important this would be to us. But our question right now is, why would Jesus go into the desert? And I think it's important to realize that Jesus had laid the foundation. For 30 years, Jesus had laid a foundation that gave his house the strength to stand up in the storm, right? It says, build your house on the rock so that when the storms of life come, it won't get blown over. And so I think the first thing we need to do is look at the foundation of a person who would allow themselves to be led by the Spirit into the wilderness, into hard places, into places where it seems like there's no benefit. Because really, at the end of the day, you could argue from a physical standpoint, what was the benefit of Jesus to go through all that suffering? Isn't that what we ask ourselves? I know I've asked myself that in trials before. What's the benefit of this? God, you could heal it like this. What is the benefit of the struggle? What's the benefit? God, I know you're all capable. I know you're all powerful. Why are we suffering? And Jesus was a man. And the devil was a real being. And the same person that suggests thoughts to us suggests thoughts to him. And just because he didn't sin in any of it doesn't mean it was any less real at any moment. Before we endure testing by the devil for the glory of God, we must believe in God's goodness and God's sovereignty. Before we will go into the wilderness, we must first believe that God is ultimately good and that God is ultimately sovereign. We will never trust God's attributes 
unless we believe in God as truth. And I, I've told Hannah, I feel like every time I preach, it always comes back to truth. But I feel like this is, Martin Luther said, you can, you can wage war on every front, but if you don't wage war where the devil's currently attacking, you're a coward. And guys, this is where the devil is currently attacking, is on truth. Because right now in secular circles, they'll come right out and say, there's no way to know any actual truth. There's no way to know for sure. In Christian circles now, the vogue thing is to say, the Bible contains truth. Okay, let's all be cool on that. But it's not all truth, obviously, because there's things in here that happen that it's just no way. So let's just, you, you'll go through it and you'll find truths that apply to your life and I'll go through it and I'll find truths that apply to my life. And when we disagree, we'll just say that's a spot in the Bible that's not true. Guys, that is an obvious attack of Satan. Because what is the requirement to getting prayers answered? What is the requirement to relationship with God? Let him ask in his heart without doubting. For he who doubts is as a wave of the sea driven and tossed. Let not that man think he will receive anything from God. And so I I tell the kids in school and I tell the adults and I tell everyone in here that truth matters. It matters that you believe in absolute truth. And it's not a weak place to stand. Okay? And I don't want to make my message about truth. But I want to give you guys two encouragements about why... Standing on absolute truth, standing on the idea that there is revealed truth, it's discoverable, and it's the same for all people at all times. All those things are incredibly important. Because if any one of those things changes, then we're no longer sure. And if there's one thing in the Bible that we can't be sure about, that we can't stake our life on, then it's all a waste. We're just playing games. This is self-improvement. This is a club you get to, to help yourself get over little flaws in your life. But if the truth is real, then the truth will set you free. And if the truth can set you free, then you can live for the glory of God. And if you can live for the glory of God, then you can finally live with purpose. Because until you live for the glory of God, you are living a purposeless life. There is no purpose to your life if it is not lived to the glory of God. So I want two encouragements to encourage you guys. Listen, guys in school, people getting jobs, moms and dads teaching your kids, the strong place to stand is with absolute truth. Not with relativism. It sounds good right now to be a relativist because it sounds like you can be more loving. But it's simply not true. The first encouragement to believe in absolute truth is that all other ideas are self-defeating. The alternative to absolute truth is called relativism. Relativism is the idea that everybody interprets truth a different way. And a truth is applied based on culture, based on personal preferences, based on personal opinion, and that we're all going to see different things as truth. That's relativism. It sounds a lot like everything we hear right now. Who are you to judge? Who are you to make a decision? How are we to decide? We don't know. In church circles, they'll say, well, that might be God's will, but we may never know. And I hope that works for you. Absolute truth says that there's truth, that it's discoverable, that it's the same for all time and all places. To stand up and tell anyone that there's no such thing as absolute truth is a self-contradictory statement. Okay? I can't tell you that there's no truth. Because for me to say that there's no truth is me stating the truth telling you that there's no truth. It doesn't work. (laughs) Remember that. For someone to say that there's no truth is them stating a fact. How can they prove that there's no truth? It's simply impossible. It's circular reasoning. Okay, so we stand on sure ground. The idea of relativism is that morality is not dictated by a revealed will, not dictated by righteousness, but that morality is dictated by what 
the biggest group of people in the room believe is morality. So people argue, well, Eskimos do this, and tribes people do this, and they're different, and so therefore, morality must just be, and you'll hear people that want to uh, push a certain agenda say, we've got to get past our judo-Christianity to, to free ourselves from that mindset so that we can, we can get rid of that, that list of morality. We need a new morality. But the fact is, nobody actually believes that. The people that argue for that only argue for it to appease their own conscience. They don't actually argue for it because they believe it. And I can prove it. Okay, I don't know how many of you know what happened in Germany on New Year's Eve. Okay, New Year's Eve, Germany. We've got all the refugees coming from the Middle East. Now, there was a large group of refugees that previously in their home where they came from had assaulted women and big groups of men. Big groups of men would get together and say, this is okay, we'll go assault women. That was their culture. Nobody called them out on it. They came to Germany, New Year's Eve. Over 600 women called into the police and said they'd been assaulted. The police couldn't do anything. A huge group of at least a thousand, maybe a couple thousand, I don't know, of men had pre-planned to get together and do this act to where there would be guys assigned different roles. They agreed it was okay. If morality is based on your culture and their culture, they can treat women like that. And yet the whole world was outraged by it, rightly so. Why was the world angry about that? Because no matter how hard you try to disprove the idea that there is a law, and if there's a law, there's a lawgiver. That's why they don't want truth. That's the only reason why. They don't want to get rid of truth because truth is unloving. They don't want to get rid, they want to get rid of truth because they don't want a lawgiver. Because if there's a lawgiver, there's a requirement on their life and they know it. And you know it. You know when you mess up that you're doing something wrong. I've heard John say when he's witnessing, you know, even a thief knows to look before he steals. What does that look prove? <laughs> you know, he, he knows he's wrong. And so the idea that there is no truth is a contradictory statement. You don't have to believe it. And you are not weak to believe in this. That's the absolute truth. Because the next encouragement is this. If there is anything true, then there's truth, okay? You can't have something that's true and not have truth. It doesn't work. Because for any single fact to be true, it has to be supported by a whole other list of facts. So, for instance, the statement, there is no truth, would have to be supported by what? Truth. Things that are true to prove that there was no truth. Okay? So now if we get past that hurdle and we say, okay, something is true, so there has to be truth, the only question left is where will we get our truth from? That's the only question. And that's, that's what I would love to see Christians witnessing over is that point. Because, see, we argue about homosexuality. We argue about abortion. We argue about all these things from what? From our understanding of the Bible. We're okay with saying this is a book of truths, not totally true, but I don't think you should do that because this book tells you not to do it. It's contradictory, right? So we believe this book is absolutely true, and really, that's the only argument. Because either this book is true or it's not. And if this book is true, then there's a responsibility we carry through our whole lives, which is what this book says. Because truth, the reason the world hates truth is because truth is always responsibility. Anytime there's truth, there's responsibility to that truth. You can't ignore it. If gravity is true, you can't jump out of buildings and be okay. <laughs> Anytime there's truth, there's a responsibility. And that's what the world is fighting. Not homosexuality, not abortion. 
Most of the people are okay with that stuff, not because they personally participate in that, but because they don't want a lawgiver. Because they don't want something that dictates on their life. Okay, so, so if we say, if we can get you to agree that there is truth, there's some kind of truth out there, it has to be discoverable. Because you can't have something true and there's no way to know it. It doesn't do us any good. So as Christians, we say, well, God revealed it in His Word. So we're saying, what is our source? Okay? I did this in my class out in Pleasureville. So you guys might remember. All right. Let's say that this circle represents all known knowledge. I don't know if you guys can see that, but it's just a circle. It's pretty simple. If this represents all known knowledge, this is the day that Adam was born. This is uh, Jesus' birth. This is when the atomic bomb was first created. Who created it? What ingredients were used in it? I mean, all knowledge. I mean, the hairs on the top of your head, the sparrow that falls down. Does it sound familiar? This is all knowledge, okay? If we are going to get our truth from something, isn't it a good idea to get our truth from the source of all knowledge? Okay, let's say this is all knowledge. And that spot on the chart is what you know. Okay? So all the universe together couldn't combine and come up with all knowledge. So even if we gathered all the people on the planet and said, let's make a list of rules, the rules would still be short-sighted. Why? Because they would fit our time frame in our culture for our people at this time, which is what all, all relativistic morality does. Which is why the church is losing its power because we're defining our morality by the cultural consensus. And the cultural consensus is always blind. So this year the big argument is tattoos or not tattoos or this or that. Whatever the culture is arguing, we step on board about red Starbucks cups. And, and we're missing the whole point. Whatever the point is, we need a source of knowledge. Because see, once I said, we can argue about all those small issues all day long. But the real fact is that there's a lawgiver and that there's somebody who has all knowledge. We need to submit to that. And I want to encourage you guys that it is not, you do not need to be ashamed to blindly trust the source of all knowledge. See, the world will tell you that is silly. That is outdated to simply put your trust in God. What's outdated and silly is to put your trust in anything that doesn't have all knowledge, that can't see the end from the beginning, that doesn't know the future. That's blind. That's something you should be ashamed of. And that's God's argument throughout Scripture. In Isaiah, he says, I am God. I don't share my glory with anyone. Your idols will put you to shame. Your idols are going to fail you in the day of trouble. So I feel comfortable using this argument because it's God's argument. God says, I know all knowledge. Don't I know the end from the beginning? Was it not I who created you? Was it not I who placed you here? Is it not I who know everything? So I want to tell you guys and encourage you guys in school, in college, at your jobs, you don't have to be ashamed of a blind faith in Jesus Christ. Because nobody has all knowledge except for Him. So just because you can trip me up on something, because there's a lot of smart people out there, way smarter than I am, that know a lot of things I don't know, that can walk circles around me intellectually. But I don't need to be ashamed. I am not ashamed of the power of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That's what Paul said. We don't have to know all knowledge. That's God's job. So we come to the place, and we see Jesus' foundation is this, is that He trusts in God as being truth. 
Okay? Because it doesn't do us any good to say God is ultimately good and God is ultimately sovereign if God isn't the source of truth. Here's what I mean by ultimately good and ultimately sovereign, guys. If God's not ultimately good, you could suffer for no reason. Do men cause men to suffer all the time? We do it when somebody cuts us off in line, when somebody takes our spot, whatever it is. The kid at school that's a punk upstart, we make them suffer, don't we? To teach them what their place is. Is God like that? No, God's ultimately good. So would God do something that harms you, that hurts you, that causes you to suffer, that's not for your good? If He's not ultimately good, He could. You might be suffering to no, for no reason if God's not ultimately good. Okay, and then, but that's not good enough. Because there's people that believe that God is, is ultimately good. He's really, really nice. He loves everybody. And yet, they don't believe that God's sovereign. If God's not sovereign, you could suffer for no reason. If God is not in control of every circumstance, you could suffer for no reason. If God wasn't in control of how hard the devil could push Jesus, how far the devil could go with Job, they could have been suffering beyond God's control. They could have been suffering beyond God's purpose. So God is ultimately good and God is ultimately sovereign, but we only believe that if we believe in absolute truth, that there's something true. So we've got to start at absolute truth and we have to start at what God has revealed himself for. And the final thing is this, that Jesus would not have went into the desert had he not been convinced that the chief end of man is the glory of God. Had Jesus been con- not been convinced that the chief end of man is the glory of God, he would not have went into the wilderness. Because what glory did Jesus receive from going into the wilderness? You could point to his ministry afterwards, but let's remember Jesus is a human being. He's not seeing the end from the beginning. He's being obedient to the will of his Father. John 5.30 says, I seek not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That was, that was what Jesus drove. That's what drove Jesus into the wilderness. Not what he could get out of it. Not what he could achieve. Not who he could become. Not what he could have. But the glory of God, his Father. Was God glorified in Him going down in front of a group of adoring people and getting baptized? Yes. Was God glorified in His wilderness? Yes. So the same reason that Jesus went into those waters to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness was the same reason that Jesus went into hard places. Romans 9, which John touched on on Wednesday night, has got to be one of the most uncomfortable chapters in the Bible. And if we believe that the reason for all of this is anything other than the glory of God, we have no explanation for it. We don't. The only way the Bible, Christianity, makes sense is if the ultimate end of man is the glory of God. Because otherwise, how do you explain the innocent women and children that Israel was ordered to kill? We need to remember that God and Jesus' will is combined. There's a lot of people that want to put God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament and create some kind of differential between them as though they're two different people. Jesus is God and God is Jesus. They are one. Jesus came to do His will. It hasn't changed. So the only way that all this makes sense to Jacob and Esau, that the quote-unquote innocent people, but we know that's not true because that's why Paul wrote Romans, but I'm just saying to make a point is that we've got to be convinced that all this is about the glory of God. It's not about our maturity. It's not about what we can gain in this life. It's not, about, it's not about achieving some level of spirituality. It's about the glory of God. See, I think that if we're not careful, what we do is we, we take Christianity and say the point of Christianity is my maturity. 
Now, don't get me wrong. God intends us to grow into maturity, but I don't think maturity can be attained by any of us any more than than the bearing of fruits. Maturity is not a goal of the Christian life. Maturity is an outcome. It's an outflow. Just like a tree bears fruit because it's a tree. You know, Jesus said, by your fruits, you will know them. We're all producing fruit. We can't help it. The only question is what kind of fruit we're producing. In the same way, maturity is an outflow of your obedience. The point is not maturity. The point is God's glory. The point is God intends to be glorified through his creation. And if I don't get sidetracked on truth, I always get sidetracked on glory. I'm going to run through this really fast because this isn't my message. But I think it's so important. And I can give you guys, I can give you guys a sheet. It's got, I got sidetracked this week and I went through because I wanted, I didn't want to tell you guys that the chief end of man was the glory of God and have you believe it because I said it. I want to tell you guys that the chief end is the glory of God and not you and not me and not us and not this place, but the chief end is the glory of God because the Bible said it. So if you guys are taking notes, I have six headings. You can just write those six headings down. If you want this handout, I can email it to you or send it to you. I'm going to run through this as fast as I can so we can get back to Jesus and the wilderness. But I think this is so foundational. We will not go to the desert if we don't believe in absolute truth. We will not go to the desert if we do not believe that our purpose, our fulfillment, the best thing we can have, the best thing we'll ever be is the glory of God. If we're not convinced of that, we won't make it. We won't go into the desert. We'll be like the man who hid his talent and said, you are a hard master. Did Jesus deny him that? And he said, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm easy. I'm easy, all you had to do is just, just use your talent. He didn't. He said, you knew who I was. And you knew when I came back, I expected you to have done something. And I believe what that thing was, was glorify the Father. So I'm going to, take, I'm going to walk real fast through the Bible and, and prove that if we believe there's absolute truth, that we believe that truth is found in this Bible, then the truth is that the chief end of man is the glory of God, period. And our enjoyment of Him forever. But the glory of God is a thing. Okay, number one, God is glorious. Psalms 19 says it's evidenced by His creation. Revelations 4.11 says it's evidenced by His creative power. First Chronicles 29.11 says it's evidenced by the ownership of all creation. It's evidenced by His sustaining power and it's evidenced by His work of salvation. God is glorious. It's just a statement of fact. When we say God must be glorified, the reason God must be glorified is because the fact is there's absolute truth. There's something that's true. So the fact is that the truth of the gospel is this. God is glorious. Romans 1 says, because they did not like to think of God as God, because they did not give God glory that He deserved, He turned them over. The curse did not come because of Sunday school attendance, because of clothes that they wore, because of what they did. All of those things are important, but the fact is, glory of God. God must be glorified, number one, because God is glorious. Number two, God's glory or God's preeminence requires our glorification of it. God's glory is singular. There's nothing else that can compare to God's glory. There's no alternative. That's why any time that we choose not to glorify God, we sin. Because to not glorify God is to not acknowledge what the reality of the universe is. This universe was created for Him. Revelations 4.11 says, But for thy pleasure they were created. Thou hast created all things. So the first thing, God is glorious. Secondly, God's glory, His preeminence requires our glorification of it. 
Three points to God's glory being singular. His glory cannot be shared. His glory is His defining characteristic. And denying Him glory leads to a curse because it seeks to deny the reality of His universe. Third point, God's glory is His own and ultimate end. Think about that. God's glory is His own ultimate end. We say, my ultimate end is to glorify God. Why is that? Well, because God's ultimate end is to glorify Himself. Why would God's... Where does it say that? The earth is filled with His glory in Numbers 4.21. Heaven will be filled with His glory in Revelations. All of creation will at the last glorify God in Revelations and in Romans. And finally, in John, our prayers are answered through Christ so that the Father can be glorified. Have we thought about that? Our prayers are not answered to give me relief, to give me what I want, to get me where I want to go. Our prayers are answered through Christ to the glory of God. Number four, our ultimate end is His glorification. There's not two ultimate ends for us. We're not all serving our own purpose. I'm not going to be a submarine pilot and you're not going to be a wind turbine operator. Our ends are all the same. Our ultimate end is the glory of God. What does the Bible say about that? Number one, do all to the glory of God. And that was in context, if you read 1 Corinthians, it's in context of having brethren with other views, with other point of views. And what does he say? He says, don't offend them. Don't seek to do anything to offend anybody. Why? Because God's glory is more important than your rights. Why? Because the ultimate end is not my rights. It's not what I can have as an American. It's not who I can be when I grow up. It's the glory of God. So if God is glorified by me submitting to your belief that the food you offer to idols cannot be eaten, then I will not eat it to not offend you because God's glory is the main thing. Do all to the glory of God. That's the context of that verse, whatever you do. Our ultimate end is His glorification. We are called over and over in Scripture to be changed into the glory of Christ. Because Christ is glorious, we will be glorious like Him. Our call and our hope is that we be changed into what He is. We are called by the gospel unto glory. That's 2 Thessalonians 2. Jesus was crowned with glory to the end that He might bring many to glory. We are called to glory in 2 Peter. We are told to seek glory through patient, continual obedience in Romans 2 verse 7. God has called us to His eternal glory. And God tells us that all of His promises are for His glory. Well, all the promises of God in Him are yes, and in Him, amen, to what end? To the glory of God through us. Fifthly, God is primarily glorified through us in two ways. Through bearing fruit and through our suffering. Fruit biblically is the outflow of His presence and the outworking of His kingdom in our life. John 15, verse 7 and 8. All of John 15 talks about our fruit is being produced through obedience and surrender, not through self-effort. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7 that we are always producing fruit of some kind. The good fruit only comes through full surrender to the revealed will of God. Fruit can be defined as the manifestation of Christ and His kingdom in our life. And the Bible lists many different things as fruit. When Christ is glorified, John 15 verse 7 says, In this the Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So if our chief end is God's glory, the biblical way to bring God's glory is to bear fruit. The only way that we bear fruit is not by self-effort, not focusing on the fruit, but by utter submission to the superiority of God in all things. That's how we bear fruit. So God is primarily glorified through fruit, and then God is primarily glorified through our suffering. And this is biblical. 1 Peter 1.7 says, The trial of our faith will be found to glory. 1 Peter 1.11 says that Christ was glorified 
that God was glorified through the suffering of His Son. 2 Corinthians 4.15 says, Our suffering is working for us an eternal weight of glory. 1 Peter 2, verse 20 says, We should expect to suffer so that as Jesus glorified the Father, so can we. 1 Peter 5.10 says, God brings us into His image through the things that we suffer. So God is glorified in us when we bear fruit. Fruit is things in our life that look like Jesus, that look like His kingdom. And Jesus is glor- God is glorified when we suffer for His sake. And our final point is this. Is that why is God so hard on us about this? Because He is. Because there's not two ways to see this. I, I stand by, if this Bible is true, then the chief end of man is glorify God, period. I stand by that because you cannot read this Bible. Look at Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of the greatest empire on earth. And for seven years, God dropped him. And somehow his kingdom stayed intact and somehow it was there waiting for him when he got done. Why? Because God said it would be. And when he came to his right mind, what did Nebuchadnezzar say? He said, now I know that God does whatever he wants among men. This Bible, front to back, is about God's glory. But why? Because in our humanity, we tend to think, well, that's selfish. God's ultimate end is His own glory. Well, who does God think He is? That'd be like me saying, the most important thing in the universe is me. Well, that's ridiculous. The reason that God's glory is the main thing is because God's glory is all that's right and all that's good and all that we ever hope to be. Because every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father in who there is no variance or shadow of changing. Because His perfect love casts out fear. Because His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Because He lays down His life for His friends. Because that's the God we serve. That's what makes Him glorious. And that's why His glory is the main thing. Because His glory is the only good thing. That's what He keeps saying. You're substituting my glory for sisters. You're substituting my glory for... for for things that are going to pass away. You could have my glory, but instead you, you embrace death and darkness. The greatest judgment of the world was that light came into darkness and darkness didn't want it. Darkness didn't want light. Jesus comes to us and says, glorify me. And we say, well, that, that would be too hard. That's not what I want. It is what you want. You've just been blinded by the God of this world. We've been blinded to the, to the depths of depravity that this world has fallen into by the devil and we've come to believe that this is normal you guys normal is the garden of eden that's normal that's god's glory that's where this is all going to end up when god finally says enough my glory will once again reign over all creation that's where we'll go is god's glory so is it too much for God to say right now at this time in your life the most important thing in your life is not that you're comfortable it's not that you get what you want but it's that i am glorified Because I am ultimately glorious. So if God is glorified in some way through our small, small suffering, then can we not suffer for His glory? Because He's called us unto it. Because He says, I will receive glory. People will see who I really am through your suffering. Can we not do that? Can we not go to the wilderness? Because that's what He's asking to do. He's asking us to go wherever He wants us to go. He's saying... He who followed me must pick up his cross and follow me. Not look back. Don't put your hands upon him. Look back. Don't look for another way. Don't go bury your father first. Don't make excuses. Come and follow me right now. Let's go. But it's always going to be about his glory. It never gets to be about us. 
And he might stick us up to deepest, darkest Peru. But if it's for his glory, then we should do it. Because that's that's the thing that matters. And that's why Jesus went into the wilderness. Because he said, what do you want me to do, God? Do you want me to go in front of a crowd of adoring people and be baptized? I'll do it. Where do you want me to go next? Into the desert with nobody? Abraham took his father with him when he went to the desert. He needed backup. But Jesus just, he didn't tell John the Baptist, well, hey, come with me. I'm going to go do a spiritual retreat. You come with me and uh, we'll do this thing together. No. He said, where do you want me to go? The spirit drove him in the wilderness. He went out to the wilderness. Okay, so, so what all I've tried to do so far is just lay the foundation to get you guys willing to go into the wilderness. Because if we don't see what God is offering us is better than all the other alternatives, we'll never take what God's offering us. If we don't see where God's taking us as a better destination than all the other roads will take us, then we'll never go there. And that's why I didn't feel like I could just go right to the temptation of Christ and say this is how you overcome temptations because there's a chance if we're not going to go in the wilderness, we will not face these temptations. We'll never come to that dark night of the soul where we stand between us, we stand toe-to-toe with the devil and we confront him and we break the power of the world over our life. If we're not first convinced that in the wilderness I will glorify, I will glorify God. And in my dying, I will glorify God. And in my living, I will glorify God. And in my eating, and in my not eating, and in everything I do, I will glorify God. If we're not convinced by that, we simply will not do it. And if we don't do it, then the rest of Matthew, the rest of Luke, isn't there. It's that important. I really believe it's that important. Once again, we come back to this maturity thing. You guys, was Jesus mature when he went into the water to be baptized? I wager you say he's a lot more mature than I am. He was mature. He knew his God. He had close relationship. He was sinless up to that point. The wilderness wasn't there for his personal maturity. The wilderness was there to glorify God. And we'll see. If you can turn over to 1 John, we'll see, hopefully, what I mean by that. 1 John chapter 2. I said, I believe John referenced this experience in 1 John, and this is where. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John writes, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doth the will of God abideth forever. That's what I mean when I say we need to win the interior battle with the world. That's the world I'm talking about. Is First John right here. We need to win the interior battle with these three things. So that we can then go to the exterior world and have them see the glory of the Father. John 2.15 says, Love not the world, nor the things of the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Man, think about, think about what that just said. Not that you don't love the Father, but that the love of the Father is not in you. If any man loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What empowered Jesus to go and glorify the Father? It was the love of the Father. The power that Jesus had was not from himself. It was from the Father. It was the love of the Father in him. And he says that the love of the world crowds out the love of the Father. The love that we could experience, the life that we could experience from the Father is crowded out. 
by the love of the world. What is he talking about when he says love of the world? He goes right on in verse 16 and tells us. What does he mean when he says love of the world? For all that is in the world, he lists three things here. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but is of the world. So here's what he's saying. I can't remember if it was Mr. Freeman or Mr. Hamilton that said, all sins fall underneath these three categories. Every temptation in your life will fall under one of these three categories. It's that simple. <laughs> There's only three things you have to be on guard for. If you can be on guard for these three things, you can go and glorify the Father in all things. Your heart will have room for the love of the Father in it. From which, I'm going to tell you this, guys, you get the love of the Father in your heart. You won't need motivation to minister. And I don't mean minister as what I'm doing up here. I mean minister as in participation and the glorification of Jesus Christ. I mean, you get the love of the Father in here. And what does it say? The love of the Father compels. The love of the Father pushes. The love of the Father says you can't stay here. You've got to go to the wilderness. And then you've got to come back. And then you've got to preach. And now you've got to go heal. That's the love of the Father. The love of the Father. Because what did Jesus say? I don't do anything to my own good. I don't do anything for myself. I seek not my own. I do the will of the Father. It was the love of the Father that propelled Jesus. So here John says, these three areas, be on guard against them so that the love of the Father can dwell richly in your heart. And so that everything that God is, you can be because the love of the Father is in your heart. So there's three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we always think of the word lust in kind of like a a sexual connotation or something, but the word here just means longing. It just means dissatisfaction, just an urge to have. I want that. I want that. I want that. And that is contrasted with Jesus saying, Abide in me, and my words abide in you. Come to me and you shall have rest from all your labors. So here's the contrast, guys, that drive in your life for these three things. That unsatiated desire that you achieve, but you have not. You fill your pockets, but they're empty. You build your empire, but it vanishes in a moment. That is the world. And so he's saying, win the interior battle with the world. So that you can go to the exterior world, and the Father can be glorified through you. If you can turn back to Matthew 4, we'll see that these three areas are exactly the three areas that the devil tempted Jesus on. <clears throat> Matthew 4, starting verse 3 and 4, it says, The tempter came to him and said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And I've read that my whole life and just been like, well, yeah, I mean, look, that's a good answer. That's why he shouldn't have turned the stones into bread. But I never put myself in Jesus' shoes. What would make him think of that verse? And, And it's not just that he didn't want to perform the miracle, because it's not like Jesus didn't do food miracles. I mean, shortly thereafter, he goes and turns water into wine. What's the point of that, Jesus? Later, he goes and curses a fig tree and it dies. Why curse the fig tree, Jesus? Later, he feeds um, 5,000 twice. He he multiplies the loaves. So it's not like it was outside the realm of possibility that Jesus couldn't speak to the stones and say, I'm hungry, I'm starving, I need some food, give me some food. So where was the sin? Was he sinning when he did all those other miracles? No. So why did Jesus perceive it as sin? To turn stones into loaves of bread so that he could fulfill his immediate need. Did Jesus have an immediate need right then? As in, maybe, I don't know if his body was shutting down, but I'm sure he felt like his body was shutting down. 
Because I'm sure at the end of 40 days when you hunger, you feel like your body's shutting down. Did Jesus have an absolute immediate need? Like, I'm going to die if I don't get this. Yes. He absolutely, it says he, he hungered. He was starving. He needed that. Are there any areas in our lives that we feel like, Jesus, you brought me here. I need the answer right now, yesterday, and there's nothing coming. And is that not when the alternatives start popping up in your mind like, like wildflowers? Okay, I've waited as long as I can. God, I was out here 40 days and 40 nights the whole time being tempted by the devil. I've withstood all those attacks. Now I'm hungry. And like I said, we don't know that the devil showed up in bodily form. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Either way, it was an interior battle with Jesus. He's hungry. He has the power to turn stones into bread. He has the power to meet his immediate need, and yet he chooses not to. We have so much that we can learn from this. Because so often our lives are nothing more than the drive to meet our needs. We've reduced ourselves. The glory of God's creation, His glory, has reduced themselves to being concerned about their kingdom and their needs. When Jesus said, I tell you, don't worry. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all the things that are pushing the Gentiles, all the things that they run so hard after to build and to hold and to have, I will give it to you. But you rest. You be convinced that the end of the thing is in my hand. If you turn to Deuteronomy 8, that's where Jesus referenced. And I wanted to see, okay, so what was it that Jesus knew? What did Jesus read that made him realize that behind what could have seemed like a benign request, which was basically... Fill your need. Take care of what you need. How did Jesus perceive that to be sin? Because he did have a need. God has provided, promised to provide all of our needs. Hasn't he? Hasn't he promised to always provide our needs? Has he not said, I will give you bread. I will take care of you better than I take care of the, the flowers in the fields. Don't worry about it. I'll give you all that. Jesus had all those promises in his mind. Jesus could have used any one of those promises to say, you know what? I think you're right. I'm turning the stones to bread because I'm starving. And where would it necessarily been the sin in that? Well, the verse that he quotes is out of Deuteronomy 8, and I think this shows us why Jesus felt like it would be a sin to do that. 8 verse 2. It says, Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God has led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee, and he suffered thee to hunger, and he fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God doth man live. Thy raiment didn't wax old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as man chasteneth his own son, so the Lord chasteneth thee. Therefore, thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths of spring, a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates and honey. What is God arguing here? Wait on the Lord and be of good strength. And he will direct thy paths. So why would it have been sin for Jesus to turn those stones into bread, but not to turn the water into wine? What was he telling the devil? He was saying, I will not take the immediate out. I will not take the easy way out. I will stand still and see the salvation of my God. Because what is behind that insinuation? God brought you out here. God caused you to hunger. God has withheld what is good from you. Now here's your chance to make it all right. Here's your chance to fix it. So do something. Haven't we all faced that temptation? I know I have. I know I've taken it. I've done this long enough. 
But Jesus stares the temptation in the face and he says, man shall not live. Man shall not be controlled by his immediate need, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The verse that he quotes is out of God saying, haven't I taken care of you all this time? Why do you keep accusing me of wanting to kill you when I've taken care of you all this time? How much better can I be to you? Your clothes didn't even wear out. I supernaturally sustained the fabric of your clothes to make sure that you had everything that you need. Don't you see? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we say, well, I'm going to get mine first. I've got to make sure me and mine are taken care of. And then we'll tend to the kingdom. Then we'll take care of what you want, God. Jesus said, no, I will not. Because man does not live by bread alone. And my God is ultimately good and ultimately sovereign. And when I need food, God will bring me food. That was the test. Would he hold God as good? Would God sustain him when he needed it? Or would God let him die in the wilderness? That was the question. And the devil, I think this is the devil's most sneaky attack. Because he's doing something that's kind of benign. That's kind of... What we would all do when there's this problem. We meet our need. That's what we're programmed to do. And yet Jesus denied his immediate pressing need. And you guys, I know we've all been in mental and spiritual battles. We know the fatigue that sets in. I think he was experiencing the fatigue. And yet the word that he'd hidden in his heart, the foundation he had laid, to say that I believe my God is ultimately good and ultimately sovereign and my God will not let me die in this wilderness, was what propelled him to say, no, I will not meet my needs. I will stand still until God meets my needs. Jesus would have never had angels come and minister to him if he had turned those bread into stone, those stones into bread. And how many ways and how many times in our life are we doing that? We need so much, we want so much, we reach for so much, we've got to have so much. How much of our life is spent, wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he will direct thy steps. I shall hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk you in it. How much of our lives is spent with that determination? That man doesn't live by bread alone. And what did they say when they got ready to throw those Hebrew boys in the fire? If we die, so be it. God be glorified in our death. But we believe God's able to save us. And that was what Jesus shows us right here. Because over and over, Israel, type of God's people, had shown over and over again that they were unwilling to go that far. As soon as personal need cropped up, they were gone. They were done. And Jesus stood up to the test and he said, I will wait on the Lord. You go back to Matthew 4. <clears throat> That's the lust of the flesh. When John says the lust of the flesh, what he's talking about is our hunger and our appetites. It's the things that we want, the, the needs that we have, the hungers, those desires. This hits every one of us right where we're at, guys. The lust of the flesh, the desire to be recognized, the desire to be, to be held, the desire to have, to, to want, to be. This is the lust of the flesh. It's the things we want, we need. We're going to confront that this and kids in school tomorrow. Are you going to be a jerk to somebody just to just to sustain your place in the pecking order? Are you going to lay down your life and be a servant, even if people make fun of you? This is us on the job tomorrow. Are we going to be honest and tell the truth, even if it hurts? Are we going to go with the lust of the flesh and say, if I do that, it'll hurt me in this way. I can't afford that. I'm taking the easy out. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. If I trust God, God will bring me where he is most glorified. God will direct my steps in a way that he is most glorified by the outcome of my life. My only job is to submit to the will of God. That's it. 
not to become mature, not to bear fruit, not to do anything recognizable, just submit to the will of God. And we can't do that until we win the war with these three areas. The lust of the flesh. The second is the, the pride of life. Verse 5, it says, Then the devil taketh them up to the holy city and setteth them on the pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. And Jesus said, It is written, Do not tempt the Lord thy God. And I want to point out that the devil here used Scripture. Just because you can find a verse to buttress your opinion does not mean you've won the argument. Because it was a real verse, right? It really said that. He could have literally said that and said, I'm taking that verse. I'm going to throw myself off the temple. But he didn't. The test here was would Jesus become self-dependent? Because what he would be doing is attracting attention to himself. See, he was just been baptized what would have been the obvious beginning of a ministry. And here he is, 40 days in the desert. Looks like no more ministry. So here's his chance to go and prove the supernatural again to a big crowd of people at the temple. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do it. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. The pride of life, the desire for success, the desire to achieve, the desire to be, the pride of life, the desire to be recognized. And Jesus said, I'm not going to take that temptation either. The last one is the lust of the eyes. The devil again taketh them up an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things I will give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. I think this is the most blatant and obvious of all of the devil's attacks. This is his last card and he throws it down and he says, Okay, tell you what, here's what I can do for you. What was Jesus here to do? It was to alter the outcome of the world, right? What would have made more sense? To come out of the wilderness and immediately be a king or a dignitary and have an entourage? are to come out of the wilderness by himself, famished and probably pretty skinny. That was what the devil was offering. He said, well, here's what I can do for you. Jesus didn't say, you can't do that for me. You can't give me that. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, thou shalt worship no one but the Lord thy God. That is, there shall be no other way that I will achieve anything apart from the way that God has revealed he wants me to achieve things. So that means if I don't achieve things God's way, then I don't achieve things. And Jesus was satisfied in that. And Jesus said, The Lord thy God, thou shalt serve in him only. Jesus believed that God was ultimately good. That serving him was ultimately the best thing that he could do. And we're in the middle of an election cycle, guys, and the temptation is to get sucked in and think that politics fixes anything. I challenge you to study history and find out from a Christian's perspective and a spiritual good, what has accomplished more good, revivals or political movements? Hands down, revivals. Hands down, when God moves to fix a nation, a nation is fixed. So if you're really concerned about this nation, let's get on our knees and pray for it. Because what was the devil saying here? Just make a little pact and we can work together and we'll get this done. What is politics? That is the democratic process. There is no way anybody can be in politics and not compromise. You can't go and and run a theocracy. That's Christianity. If we're going to run a government, it's got to be a theocracy. Good luck. You're not going to have much of a following. You guys, the temptation is always to use the world's way to achieve the world's means. And God comes and says, I've come that you might have life and life more abundant. He's going to change the world in His way. And He's not beholden to any process. Don't get sucked into that because we get ugly with people and we we say things that, that are unchristian. We say things that are mean. And we shouldn't even be worried about it. Because who's in charge of who rules? God says, I set an authority. 
I set up kingdoms. Okay, so let's be Christians. Let's stay Christians, guys. We shall worship no one but the Lord my God. That's who I worship. That's who I look for for my solutions. Okay, and politics is all about finding a solution to a problem. We look to the Lord our God to find a solution for our problems. But the lust of the eyes is anything that we we do out of pride. It's the things that we see, that we want, that we covet, that we have to have, that mold our perception of what's acceptable and not acceptable. That's the pride of life, the pride of who we can be, the pride of what we can have. And then if you read Matthew 4.11, it says, Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. You guys, the end of the thing is always good. It's always in God's hands. Jesus was vindicated for staying out in the wilderness. The devil's lie was that had Jesus stayed in the wilderness, he would have died from starvation. He would have never been noticed by anybody. And he would have never received any power. Yet because Jesus chose God's glory over his own comfort, over his own needs, because of that, he goes forth and he ministers in power. And because of that, he changes the world. Changes the world's history for 2,000 years and going. That no matter how much people hate him, no matter how much they deny him, no matter how much they fight against him, they cannot move the rock that cannot be shaken. No matter how many people have come up and said that, that given a couple decades, Christianity will go away because we're getting too smart for it. No matter how many people stand up and say that, Jesus remains. Because the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. And so I encourage you guys, stay with God. There's a hundred outs you realize that that's the devil's only entrance into your life is these three gates. The devil's only access to your life is in these three gates. If we can guard these three areas, the pride of the flesh, the pride of the eyes, the pride of life, if we can guard those three areas, then the love of the Father can dwell in us. And only the love of the Father abides forever. You can achieve the car, you can achieve recognition, you can establish yourself as a somebody. You can have money. You can do all that. What does it say? The world and the lust thereof is passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That's our promise. And I'm telling you guys that we, we do that. We don't pray for revival. We'll, we'll have revival. We do that. We won't be stuck forever in this battle. I don't believe Christianity was ever meant to be constantly a battle about my interior struggle. I believe we are to go into the wilderness and, and beat this battle so that we can go out and be useful to God. Whatever those holdups are in our life, those personal sins, the things that, that we say, well, oh man, if they knew that about me, so I'm just I'm going to fold my hands. Or I, I can't do that because of this thing in my life. Those things, those foxes that spoil the vine, your life is going by day by day and God is not getting the glory He deserves because we've let the foxes in, these little tiny things in our lives that we have the power to overcome. We've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. Nothing is lacking from our, our armament. We have all that we need. Let's use it. Let's win these battles, these interior battles with the world so that there's no death in us. So there's nothing in us that is passing away. So that the only thing that remains in us is the love of the Father. Because when all that we have is the love of the Father, we won't need motivational speeches to witness. We won't need motivational speeches to pray for the sick and see them recover. We will pray for the sick. One of my prayers for this church is that cancer would die right there at that door. That cancer could not come in here. That heart attacks could not come in here. That sickness could not come in this building. Why? Because this building is where God's kingdom comes together. What business has sickness in our midst? 
No business. Let's stay in the wilderness. Let's win this battle so that God can be glorified. Not so that we can be a healthy bunch of, of fat guys and get ourselves to heaven, but so that God can be glorified. So that that on the wall is not writing, but that on the wall is written on, the, on, the, on our life. And that on the wall is what people see when we walk out. It says God must heal today because they healed him. God must make the lame to walk because they walk. Let's be like that. But Jesus had to go through the wilderness. We've got to stay in the wilderness. See, at any time Jesus leaves the wilderness and goes back to John the Baptist and becomes one of his buddies, we don't have the rest of the gospel. Jesus stayed in the wilderness. Let's stay in the wilderness. Let's see God glorified through our lives. He is faithful to keep us from falling and present us faultless before his throne. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, we stand before you so grateful for what you've done, for what you've accomplished, for what you've purchased for us, Father. Let it be so, Father. May every word of your promise not fail. And let it come and accomplish tenfold in our midst and in our lives, Father. May we forever glorify you with the words of our mouth, with our meditations, with the directions of our hearts, God. May we just glorify you in this place, Father. May our families be glorifying to you, Father. May our relationships be glorifying to you. May everything we do be to your glory, God. That we could experience your favor in the land of the living, God. That we could see your goodness, God. And that we could tell it to the nations, Father, that our God is good and our God is sovereign. And he does as he wills. And he showed us his will so that we can do as he wants us to, Father. Be with us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand up.
Father, as we leave this place, Lord, you are in our midst. You dwell in our hearts.